Thank you, Pastor Tim, and uh, I appreciate having a pastor that's uh, willing to share the pulpit. It is a grace so that other young preachers can grow in their preaching, so I appreciate that. Uh, this evening, as we wrap up the New Year's weekend, what I would like to preach on is the reality of how the Christian ought to walk in relation to time. So if you will, turn with me to Ephesians 5. Turn with me to Ephesians 5. We'll be looking at verses 15 through 21. And if you will, stand with me for the reading of God's word, if you're physically able to do so. Again, Ephesians 5, verses 15 through 21. See then that you walk circumspectly, not as fools, but as wise, redeeming the time, because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be unwise, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not be drunk with wine, in which is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord, giving thanks always for all things to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another in the fear of God. Let us pray. Father, we thank you that we are able to gather this evening because of the work of Christ. Lord, we thank you for his atoning work on the cross. We thank you that we can gather as the people of God, as this local church, Lord, because of what you have done. And we thank you that you have given us your word so that we may know you, so that we may walk in step with you, Lord, with our Savior Christ. And we pray this evening as we look to your word that you would give us ears to hear, that you would give me boldness in preaching by the power of your spirit, and we ask all these things in Christ's name. Amen. You can be seated. Now, New Year's is traditionally a time that we look back on the closing of a year, the past year, and then we look forward to the year to come. It can often be a time of reflection for people as they evaluate their past year, and as the year changes, people often make attempts to make changes in their own life based upon areas that they found to be deficient this past year or uh, throughout their life. And what has popularly become to known as, uh, we know, New Year's resolutions. Now, studies show that around 141 million Americans make New Year's resolutions every year. And even employers now start to jump in on this bandwagon as now they offer tips on how their employees can have better mental well-being or how they can improve their personal finances. Uh, at work this week, I even got an email from my employer talking about how they can help the employees to achieve their New Year's resolutions, things like even losing weight. My favorite was it mentioned the work-life balance. So I'm looking forward to this next year working less. Uh, so hopefully they're supportive of that, right, as they want me to have a good work-life balance, right? So everyone's jumping in on New Year's resolutions. It's very common. But one thing is the average lifespan of a New Year's resolution is February 1st. So the average person stops whatever it is that they committed to at the change of a new year by February 1st. That is the average. So obviously some people go longer, but some people go even shorter than that. So for many, New Year's is, again, that once-a-year time of self-evaluation as one attempts to, quote-unquote, make themselves better, a better person in some capacity in their life. Now, Christians, as Christians, we should be well accustomed to considering how we are to live out our faith in a world where our days are numbered. 
And so for the Christian, our motivation, though, is much different. And the one who empowers us to change also brings about his purposes. So he will accomplish what it is he has set out to do within us, which is sanctification. That if we are in Christ, that he will sanctify us, that he will bring us in conformity with his son. So it's the ongoing process of change, and it doesn't end February 1st. It has no termination until the return of Christ when we are glorified with him. So for the Christian, the exercise of considering how we are spending our time, it should be taken very seriously. And so we ought to be a people who do consider how we are using the time that God has given us. Making course corrections in our lives should not be limited, though, to a change of a calendar year. But instead, it's an ongoing part of the Christian walk. As God, through his spirit, sanctifies us, conforming us to Christ's image, and as we live our lives to the glory of God. So as we wrap up our New Year's weekend, let us look to Scripture in relation to living out our faith during our limited time on earth. So if you will look with me to our text. Paul begins by saying in verse 15, See then that you walk circumspectly, not as fools, but as wise. So he's beginning this section by calling us to mind our walk to be careful how we walk. And the theme of walking is prevalent throughout the book of Ephesians. So if you will, walk with me back to chapter 2, and we will look at Paul's use of this word of walking. Paul's very concerned with how we walk as Christians. And it's demonstrated through his repetition of this term. So as we look at chapter 2, Paul's first mention of walking is chapter 2, verse 2. We'll begin in verse 1, though. And you he made alive, who were dead in trespasses and sins, in which you once walked. Right? So he's saying, you were dead in your trespasses and sins. Right? Prior to salvation, you were dead in your trespasses. It's the way in which you once walked, according to the course of this world. Right? So you are walking after the path of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air. He's speaking of Satan. That's who we were walking after. The spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience. That same spirit was the spirit we were walking after. The, one, the spirit that is in the sons of disobedience. Among whom also we all once conducted ourselves in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, just as the others. So Paul uses very strong words to describe the walk that we all once walked. The way in which we all once lived, following the course of this world, following the ways of this world, is who we all once were. But praise God, it doesn't end there. Paul continues in verse 10, he says, and we'll actually go back to verse 8. Paul says, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and that that of, of yourselves, sorry, not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast, as he's speaking of the grace of the gospel, For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And we'll look at this verse verse further later on. But God is saying that he has created works for us that we would just walk in them. So now Paul is contrasting who we once were, how we once walked. And now he's saying there is a new walk that the believer ought to walk. And he continues, turn with me to chapter 4, verse 1. He mentions walking again. He says, I, therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, 
beseech you to walk, so again, walk, worthy of the calling which you were called. So again, he's calling us to walk in the manner of our calling which we were called. So we're to walk a new way. It's a new walk that we are to undertake. He continues in chapter 4, verse 17, mentioning walking. In verse 17, he says, This I say, therefore, and testify in the Lord that you should no longer walk. So again, we don't walk in this way as he's about to describe, and he says, as the rest of the Gentiles walk. We don't walk like the rest of the world that is not believing in Christ. Those that are lost, we do not walk in that way in the futility of their mind. So again, he makes another mention of mind also. Then in chapter 5, in the beginning of chapter 5, verses 1 through 2, Paul writes, Therefore be imitators of God as dear children, and walk in love. Sort of walk in love. As Christ also has loved us and given himself for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling aroma. So we are to walk in love as our Savior. And that's not the last time before we get to our verse. The last one is chapter 5, verse 8. Paul writes, For you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of the light. So we're to walk in love. We're to walk as children of the light. We're not to walk in the way we once walked. We're not to walk in the way the world walks. So Paul is making very clear that he is concerned with how we walk as Christians. Is a great concern for Paul. And that brings us to our text this evening as Paul says, See then that you walk circumspectly. Circumspectly is the idea of being careful, of being watchful, being mindful. So we are to be careful in how we walk. We are to mind our walk. We are to actually think about how we are walking. And we are to walk with wisdom. Paul says not as fools, but as wise. He's contrasting the, the, the two walks that we can have. There is a walk that is foolishness, that leads to destruction, and there is a walk of wisdom as we walk after the pattern of our Savior. And so there shouldn't be a mismatch between what we profess and the walk that we walk. I once had a, a coworker, and maybe many of you have had a coworker or someone in your life like this, but this lady was, was kind of known as the complainer in the workplace. She was always negative. She was always willing to say she wasn't able to do something, didn't want to do it, she shouldn't have to do it. So always complaining about work. Also always gossiping, using foul language and the sorts. And so she was, was walking a walk that was nothing that you would describe of a Christian walk. And one day I was talking to her about her plans for the weekend, and she said, well, on Sunday, I always teach children Sunday school. And, yeah, I, I, my jaw almost dropped, uh, as, as even the unbelievers in the workplace were shocked at times by the way that she acted. And, and I thought to myself, there's a mismatch between what she is professing and between how she is walking. And let that not be us. Let that not be us, Christians, that there would be a mismatch between what we profess and how we live. I love what Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 12. He says, To keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. So even though they don't agree with us, even though they may hate us, that they can't help but recognize that what we do is different, that how we live 
is different, that there's something different about us, that even on the day of visitation, that somehow in some capacity they will glorify God because of that. And so let us make sure that, that we are a people that are walking after our Savior, that we are careful, that we are circumspect about how we walk, and to not do so as fools. Now, a foolish walk is the natural walk. As we saw in Ephesians 2, Paul says that by nature we were children of wrath. This is by nature how we were walking. But we have a new walk. We walk as those who have passed from death to life. But it can be easy to walk back into that old pattern of life that we once lived. It's starting to become colder and colder outside and and. I'm sure this year, if, if, if uh, there's a snow, it will happen in the next couple months, likely. And whenever it snows hard, and maybe they didn't salt the roads, or maybe it's just snowing so much that the, that the salt can't keep up at that point. But when you're driving, you end up typically driving behind the ruts in the car before you, once the snow starts to accumulate. Because the heat of the tires, the friction occurring on the road begins to melt that snow and, and hopefully the ice also. And once it gets to that point, you can drive pretty safely within those ruts and you just follow behind the, the cars that have preceded you. That's the easy way to drive. And it's easy even to start getting almost in a trance as you're driving. You're just following that car trying to stay in their path. And you might even miss your turn because you're just following that car in front of you. It's so dark and maybe it's even snowing that you just kind of see their lights and you're doing your best out there, right? So it's easy to stay in their path. Leaving that path is what's difficult. It's easy for us at times to go back into the path, the way that we once lived, to follow the pattern of the world, whether that's in the workplace, whether that's with our family. It's easy for us to kind of revert back and just start following right behind them, like in the snow, like that car ahead of us. It's easy for us to lose track of the path that God has called us to, which is why we must be careful. We must be circumspect. We must think about how we are walking. That is the Christian life, that we would be prayerful, that we would be considerate of what God is doing in our life, leaving that old path behind. And why? Well, Paul will tell us, because we are to redeem the time, as he says in verse 16. He says, redeeming the time because the days are evil. Ever since the Garden of Eden... Death has cast a shadow over all of our lives. Death casts an ominous shadow, reminding us that our days are short. That is one of the graces of going to a Christian funeral. As, as we see a, a family member or a brother or sister in Christ, as they've passed away and as the preacher is preaching, it reminds us that life is short. It causes us to think circumspectly. It causes us to analyze our life and to look, are we living to the glory of God? Are we using our time wisely or are we squandering it? And the Bible makes clear that we ought to use it wisely because, again, our life is a vapor, as James describes it. It's a mist. As the sun comes up, it's gone. And so these days in this fallen world, they are short. I had a friend once make the comment that he was living in the promised land and he began to explain how he was living in the promised land. But the reality is Paul would disagree with that comment. This is not the promised land. Paul says that these days are evil. The promised land is our future glory. 
as we are with Christ, as we are with our triune God in the new heavens and the new earth, we are passing through. We are passing through and the days are evil. Again, going back to how Peter describes it, Peter describes us as sojourners, as pilgrims, as those passing through a land that is not our own. And so as we're navigating this land, as we're navigating this age, this time that we live in, we must do it with wisdom and with care. You can't walk aimlessly during evil days. You Instead, you have to walk with a purpose. You have to walk with a purpose. I had a, a boss at a, at a previous job from where I work now, and one thing he taught me was to be observant. We had uh, a long walk. If we were interviewing someone, they had a long walk from the entrance to where we would interview them, and he would watch them walk in. And so he would watch them walk in, and he would tell me, you can tell a lot about a person by how they walk in for the interview. And that wasn't the end-all, be-all about the interview, but it was a big part to him about the interview. Now, obviously, there were some people that came in with wheelchairs or crutches, and we, you know, we would not put the same scale upon them. Um, but if someone walked in aimlessly, distracted, not paying attention, didn't seem to care, didn't seem to want to be there, it said a lot about that person. And as we interviewed them, we, you could begin to see those, those traits come out of that person. And so he, he taught me that, that we need to walk with a purpose, and that others should walk with a purpose. And so it, it was a very interesting observation that he taught me, but that, that, that we ought to walk with a purpose. And as Christians, we ought to walk with a purpose. When soldiers pass through a minefield, obviously they don't want to do that, but at times they must. But when they do so, they don't do it aimlessly. They don't do it hastily. They don't do it full-heartedly. Instead, they use all of their training. Everything that they were trained to do, they fall back on. They use all of their technology that's available to them, and they do it very carefully. They do it as wisely as possible so that they can navigate that minefield safely. Christians, we should be careful how we navigate these evil days, as Paul describes them, as we apply God's wisdom, redeeming the time. Now, redeeming is the idea of, of purchasing, of, of buying. It was oftentimes used in that time in the slave market of buying someone's freedom. And it's us using every opportunity that we have. As, as we redeem the time, we must use our time wisely. We must use every opportunity that God has given us. And so, Christians, we should be keenly aware of our short time on earth. I love how Moses puts it in, in his psalm, in Psalm 90, he asked God to teach us to number our days so that we may gain a heart of wisdom. So numbering our days, being reminded of the short time that we have, prepares us to have a heart of wisdom. And so as another year turns and 2021 is behind us and we look forward to another year, how will we spend it? How will we spend this year? We're not even promised this year. We're not promised that any of us will make it to 2023, much less tomorrow. So how will we spend the time, the, the days, the hours, even the minutes that God has given us? Will we do it wisely or will we waste it? Will we waste our talents that God has given us? Will we squander our time? Paul doesn't want us to live unwisely. He continues in verse 17 telling us that. He says, therefore, do not be unwise, but understand what the will of the Lord is. He wants us to live wisely. 
And as he says, do not be unwise. Unwise is that which is in opposition to God's wisdom. I think that the author of Judges puts it very well. As he describes in that time, people were living and doing what was right in their own eyes. That is worldly wisdom. That we do what is right in our own eyes, our our own fleshly desires that are in opposition to God by nature. That is unwise living. But instead, we are to live, as Paul says in, in the second half of verse 17, he says that we are to live according to the will of the Lord. That we are to understand the will of the Lord. So first we must understand. And then we can actually can do the will of the Lord by the power of the Spirit, as we will see. It's not of our own strength, of our own flesh. But instead of living unwisely, we are to follow the will of the Lord. And praise God, he's made his will clear to us. For everything, for life and godliness, God has given us sufficient revelation in his word. He has given us sufficient revelation so that we could know him, so that we can know his character, so that we can know the goodness of the gospel, so that we can, we can encounter salvation through Christ's work on the cross. All because God has revealed his will to us. And so we are to live according to that will that he has, has, has given us, that he has shown us through his word, through the prophets, through the apostles. And so our lives should correspond with that, to that which is pleasing to him. Now, in ancient times, the, the pagans, they didn't understand the will of their gods, of their quote-unquote gods that were no gods at all. But they didn't understand. Sometimes they weren't sure if what they were doing would appease their gods, would make them angry. Uh, they, they didn't know. And so there were, there were times that they would do things and then they would try and pivot and do something else because their gods were capricious. Their gods were not consistent. Their gods had not made themselves known because they were no gods at all. But the God of Scripture has made himself known to us. We have a God that has given us his law, that has, has given us his word so that we could know him and have fellowship with him and walk in step with his spirit. So praise God for that. So, so how are we could to live in response to that? And so again, lest we think that all this wise living, this living carefully is something we do in our own strength, Paul points us back to the one who empowers us to do this. So if you'll look with me in verse 18. Paul writes, And do not be drunk with wine, in which is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit. So Paul has told us that our days are evil. These days will not be easy days of living. And so in difficult days, it's easy to turn to coping mechanisms. It's easy for us to turn for, to things outside of what God has called us to do, how God has called us to live. Solomon is a great example. In the book of Ecclesiastes, we see Solomon as he lives out life, quote-unquote, under the sun. As he turns to the things of this world for his pleasure, for his delight, he, he turns himself into things like even art, strong drink, women, even knowledge, knowledge de, 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 sorry, de, apart from fellowship with God. He turns to all the things of this world, and in the end he realizes that they're vain. That the things of this world are vain. And that he's in to live in light of God, to have fear of the Lord. He throws himself into the world to only see that it is empty. 
And so when the days are evil, it's easy for us to throw ourselves at coping mechanisms, at things of this world like wine, strong drink, alcohol. You could insert many words here of things that we may indulge in. But those things are empty. Those things are of nothing. But drunkenness in particular, it has a way of, in a sense, controlling the mind. It kind of ruins our judgment. It leads to dissipation. As our text puts it, dissipation is, is really that idea of depravity, of debauchery. The prodigal son really is a great example of one that has, has thrown himself into dissipation. As he's thrown himself into the world only to see its emptiness. And if you've ever watched the show Cops or just even watched the news, you've probably seen examples of people who have been pulled over with a DUI and they come stumbling out of the car and, and it's obvious that, that they are drunk, but the cops obviously have to follow their procedures and do a sobriety test. And so what they'll have them do is, is oftentimes one of them is to walk in a straight line and they can even use the lines in the road as a way to walk in a straight line. And typically, the average human above probably the age of three or four years old can walk in a straight line, no problem. But if one is drunk, they, they, you watch them stumble to the left and, and to the right, and, and it almost looks impossible for them to do this basic thing like walking on a straight line. Paul doesn't want our walk to be impaired. He doesn't want us to be controlled by another. He doesn't want us to be stumbling across the path. He wants us to be focused and to be filled with the Spirit. That is the contrast Paul is making here, that, that we're not to be stumbling about, that we are not to aimlessly wander, but we are to be controlled by another, and that is the Spirit of God. So this call to walk a certain way, it's, it's not based on works righteousness. We're not, we're not to walk a certain way to earn God's favor or, or to make ourselves righteous. Instead, it's a pattern of life, and it's a manner of walk that's done in the power of another. And it's patterned after another. It's patterned after our Savior, and it's in the power of the Spirit of God. If you will, indulge me and turn back one more time to Ephesians 2. Ephesians 2, verse 10. Again, Paul writes, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. That we should walk in them, that God prepared these good works for us. We see God's sovereignty intersect with human responsibility. As, God says, as, as, as Paul says that, that God has prepared these works for us, and now we ought to walk in them. We see that intersection of God's sovereignty and human responsibility as we are to live out the Christian faith. All the while as he is empowering us by his spirit, that he is ongoing, ongoingly filling us with his spirit throughout our life. And that is the pattern by which we are to walk. And in, in the following verses, Paul will talk about the expression of what the, that spirit-filled life looks like. Look with me in verses 19 through 20 as Paul writes, Speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord, giving thanks always for all things to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. So the Spirit-filled life, it's a transformed life that expresses itself in the worship of God. 
that we would be transformed and that the Spirit would conform us to the image of Christ and all of this would display itself in the worship of God. Jesus says in Luke 6, verse 45, that out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. That what it is that is filling our heart will overflow through our mouth. And if it's the Spirit of God filling our hearts, conforming us to Christ, what will come out of our mouth are godly things, godly words and godly song in particular, as, as Paul speaks of here, that we would be a people with a song in our heart because of what God has done for us. And so worship is expressed by what comes out of our mouths. If what comes out of our mouths is nothing but ungodliness, then that expresses what is in our heart. God's people throughout history have had a pattern of responding to God in worship. And in particular, as Paul is highlighting in music, that we would respond even in music. Now, the instruments have changed over time. The melodies at times may be different. But the people of God, we have used our voice. We've even used our hands. We've used even our dance at times to glorify God. The overflow of our heart as we express worship to the God who has redeemed us. Paul is calling us to a new state of mind. It's a heart filled with the Spirit expressing its love for God and our joy, our newfound joy in Christ through the heartfelt worship of God. Throughout the Gospels, we see men and women get healed, and they can't but tell of Jesus. There's even times where Jesus tells them not to speak of what he has done, and they immediately go out and speak of what he has done because they can't but help express the overflow of their heart and what Christ has done for them. And so if we truly revel in the gospel, if we dwell on what he has done for us, how could we not respond in praise? God has sent his perfect son into the world to live the life that we couldn't live, to be scorned, to be mocked, to be killed, to die as a substitute in our place, substituting himself on the cross for us, paying the debt that we could never pay, dying for us if we are in him, providing atonement for the sins for all that would believe in him. And so if we dwell on that, how can we not but respond in praise? If we dwell on the goodness of Christ and the gospel and what he has done for us, how can we not but respond in praise? How can that not be the overflow of our heart? And if you're here and, and you, you can't say that that is the overflow of your heart, that you can't say that you're trusting in Christ, then I call you to repent, to trust in Christ, to trust in him for salvation, to trust in his finished work on the cross and what he has done for you. Turn to him, and he will put a new song of joy in your heart. He will remove that heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And Paul continues in verse 20, continues that idea of the expression of the spirit-filled life. He says, giving thanks always. So the believer is to give thanks always for all things to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. So Paul continues this idea of worship as is expressed through thanksgiving, that we would be a people of thanksgiving. So again, as we're celebrating New Year's, we're to think of time year-round. We're not to do it once a year. Now going back to Thanksgiving, we're not to do that once a year either. Paul's calling us to be thankful, to express our lives 
in thankfulness. And he says, always for all things. The spirit-filled life is one of gratitude. It's easy for us to not give credit to God for the things that he does. Paul says for us to always be thankful. How easy is it for us to just kind of live our lives day in and day out and to easily overlook our thanksgiving to God, to overlook giving him credit for what he has done, right? We go to work Monday through Friday. We earn a paycheck that we think that we've earned that hasn't been from his hand. And then we go buy groceries at Kroger that we think that we've earned ourselves to go buy and take home and feed our families, though it is God that has provided those groceries. It's God that provided that job, the physical health for me to go to that job. It is God who has provided all things to us. So let us respond in thankfulness. Let us not lose sight of being thankful at all times, always, as Paul says, for all things. He couldn't make it any more clear that we need to be thankful. And so our music, our hearts, all of who we are, our minds, our hearts, our bodies, our souls should be directed towards God. Directing our hearts towards God, it elevates us past the worries and trials of this life. If you want to know how to not be fearful or anxious because the days are evil, dwell upon Christ, dwell upon what he has done. And he will elevate our thoughts. He will draw us into thanksgiving and the evil days will slip by. And he also goes on to say who we are to be thankful for. He directs this thanksgiving to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is triune worship. Don't miss this. He's calling us to, be, to direct our thanksgiving to God the Father, the one in whom we direct our thanksgiving to. We do it through Christ. It's through Christ that we can even worship God the Father, that we have been reconciled to God the Father. It's through his work, through Christ, can we come to God the Father. All the while we're doing this, empowered by who? The Holy Spirit. As Paul has already made mention in verse 19, saying that, or verse 18, that we are filled with the Spirit, right? This is triune worship, that it's directed towards God the Father through Christ, carried out by the Spirit. This is how we ought to respond to God, our triune God, who has done an amazing work in our lives in the gospel. And as we close, Paul calls us in verse 21. In many ways, it's a, it's a major transition as he begins to continue this idea of submission. But in verse 21, he says, submitting to one another in the fear of God. Submission is not natural to us. Submission is, again, it's an evidence that the Spirit of God has done a work on our life and is continuing to do a work in our lives. It's natural for us to assert our rights, to assert our independence, our own free will, as we love to call it, to try to exercise those things. Submission is unnatural to us. Now, oftentimes we mistake submission for, for weak or pathetic is kind of how we think of it. But we can be submissive and be bold. We can be bold Christians and be submissive Christians at the exact same time. We can be courageous and be submissive. But it's a pattern of life that's marked by humility. That we would be a people who are humble and we put others before ourselves. That we put others' needs before ourselves. Like Brother Hank shared with that that quote from Paul Bunyan, that, that idea that, that we would put others' needs before ourselves. 
This idea that Paul talks about in Romans 14 and in 1 Corinthians 8, as they're struggling with food sacrifice to idols, as, as there's, there's believers who are troubled by this, they're troubled by the fact that when they go to the marketplace, the food that they're trying to eat has been sacrificed to idols. And God has made all food clean, we know that. And so Paul is saying, you have freedom to eat this food, you have freedom to eat this meat. You can, you can exercise those freedoms, you can enjoy this meat still to the glory of God, even though it's been worshipped to an idol. Because likely that was the only meat they could get in the marketplace. But yet there were some Christians so troubled by this. Two weeks ago, they might have been worshipping those gods. And to them, it's troubling to eat this food to a god that they may have worshipped just two weeks ago. And so for their conscience, it was just unbearable that they would ever eat those meats. And so Paul says, those of you who have those freedoms, you can exercise them, but submit to the reality that some of those are troubled by it. And so I can eat the meat or I cannot, is what Paul basically tells us. Is that consider your weaker brother. That is that spirit of submissiveness that that Paul is, is calling us to, that we would care for our brothers and sisters in Christ. That we would have a submissive spirit. That we would not always try to exercise our own wants, needs, what we think is our desires. And Paul will continue this idea as he talks about what submission looks like. He will expand upon this as he talks about what it looks like in marriage, in the church, children's and parents. Even in the workplace, he talks about slaves and masters. And so Paul will make very clear what submission looks like in the following text. But again, the grounds of our submission is only because of the work of the Spirit working in us to do something that is completely unnatural to us. So as we reflect on this past year and as we look forward to years to come by God's grace, God calls us to take time to be reminded of the short time we have here. To be reminded that we live in a time of evil days And we are to redeem each of them. That we are to redeem each of those moments, each of those days. So let us be a people who are marked by an ongoing pattern of being filled by the Spirit of God. And that it would be evidenced in our walks, in how we walk, in how we live. As God works to sanctify us and conform us to the image of his Son. The days are short, so let us live wisely. Let worship be on our hearts and tongue. Let us live thankfully that we would express our love for God and thankfulness, that we would put others before ourselves, all because of God's work doing this through his spirit. So let us be mindful of our walk. Let us be circumspect about how we walk, walking in wisdom and in the power of the triune God who has bought us. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for the work that Christ has done, the pattern by which we are to live because he has gone before us. We thank you, Lord, for your wisdom and giving us your spirit. We thank you that you continue to fill us with your spirit so that we can be conformed to our Savior. Father, we pray that you would help us to walk in a manner worthy of our calling, that we would walk wisely, carefully, in these evil days, that we would encourage one another along in our walks, that we would encourage the brethren, that at times we would even pick each other up as we are struggling in our walks, that we would love each other with wisdom, submitting our own needs and desires at the foot of the cross and putting others before ourselves. Lord, we thank you for the gospel, and as we partake in the table this evening, 
as a fellowship, we just thank you for the work of Christ, the finished work on the cross. Lord, we thank you that your blood is sufficient to cover our sins. Lord, we praise you and we ask all these things in Christ's name. Amen.